This is a new episode again of the Super Awkward Funcast. Wait, should we do the theme? Let's do the theme. Super Awkward Funcast. You're listening to the Super Awkward Funcast. Yeah. Live. Oh, I forgot the live part. But it's in keeping with the tradition of this being a very untraditional improvisational and yet informational show used to be informational in a different way now we get into big 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 topics like what we're talking about tonight which is war gosh that's the one i was gonna play might as well play it now not that i remember god damn it i'm useless All right, we'll play that since nobody's here anyway. <laughs> and probably won't be here, but anyways. Oh, no. I hate YouTube, honestly. Why are you the way you are? I hate so much the things that you choose to be. said there are many i don't want to get into it too much but there are a lot of accounts out there on the twitter and the other things and the youtube and all of that that have episodes going over this very topic and a lot of them i don't know about a lot of them but some of them will be very one way or the other about a war, which is a very old war, probably the oldest one going at the moment because it started like 75 years ago, right? So there are people who are choosing to spread. I'm trying to be very careful here, but they're not being careful. So why should I be careful? Propaganda, war propaganda is being spread. Atrocity propaganda specifically. And I do want to go separately into another series, another show, not a series, but another episode, but on YouTube. So I can show you some things in the next thing and talk about atrocity propaganda. Maybe I could talk about a little bit today. I don't know. Now there's a plane. Like why? It's like they know. It's like they're like, oh, she's, she's recording. Yeah, let's go hang out over her building right now. That sounds fun. 
Yeah, for you. Anyway, I said I wasn't going to do these anymore, didn't I? I said that I wasn't going to do this again. And yet here I am. I could have done this on YouTube. I probably would have gotten more love there than I do on Podbean. Because Podbean live streams, for whatever reason, don't really go my way anymore. They went my way a little bit for, you know, for some time. And then just nothing. Like, nobody gives a shit. So, this is probably a one and done. And it's because, again, I don't want to edit. <laughs> I have other things to edit. I have other things to do that I have to to get done before I leave. So I'm leaving for Miami on the on Wednesday coming up. So it would be on the 25th. So if you're listening to this after the 25th, I'm in Miami right now. <laughs> leave me alone. But um, I will be back to do the YouTube live stream in November. And so I did this episode early. So this is an early episode, and yet a lot has happened since we last did this thing. So basically, Israel. What is Israel? That's a question I wanted to dive into a little bit today. And you won't believe where it kind of came from, but maybe you will if you know history. <laughs> But um, I was looking around trying to prepare for the show and get my materials that aren't going to be like what everybody else is talking about, the ins and outs of what's happening now, the current news. I support the current thing on this side. I support the current thing on that side. You know, the back and forth that's happening that always happens in every damn war and the misinformation, disinformation, and like, this person's doing this, this person's doing that. You know why I don't want to get into that is because I've seen the movie Wag the Dog in real life. I've seen real life instances of propaganda being created to elicit a response, a very horrific, violent response, and that never ends well. So I don't participate in it. I don't traffic in exploitative images of atrocities and murders and that sort of thing. I just, it's not my jam. And if one side is saying this and the other side is saying that, I'm not on the ground. I don't know what's going on. I'm not there. And you know what? AI is a real thing. It really exists. AI images exist. And so in this world, how can you believe anything that you see with your own eyes? Is that's, And that's something we've been talking about. And so I'm not going to forget that. I'm not going to see something, get emotionally invested and worried. And, you know, I love, love I'm love, lovey, lovey. I love peace and I don't like war. I hate violence, all of that. You know, I hate that shit. But I also hate lies and I hate propaganda. So it's like propaganda versus war. It's like, I'm not going to engage in either. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to get my point of view out there in case anyone give a sh give a sh gives a shit. Um, so here we go. So do I want to do this part? I really think I have not 
the article that I needed, but do I? Oh, no, I do. Okay. Okay, so this is from the Jewish Chronicle. So I'm getting it from a Jewish source. And this is from, what year is this from? November 15th, 2017. You know, I come with the sources. Um, a family that helped build a new nation. Then we got a Rockefeller looking at me. Lord Rothschild. Not a Rockefeller. I get them confused sometimes because they're basically the same. The Rothschild guy. The full story of the Rothschild's role in helping the establishment of Israel is not always told by Lord Rothschild. And it says this, It is a particular honor for my family that the letter containing the Balfour Declaration, which we'll get to in a second, was addressed to my great uncle Walter, the second Lord, the second Lord Rothschild. In 1915, he had inherited the title from Nathaniel, his distinguished father, and with it the leadership of the family and British Jewry. The, the letter was delivered to his home at Piccadilly and from there taken to him at his estate at Tring. Walter's great passion was zoology, and his museum at Tring housed, housed what was to become the finest private collection of natural history specimens ever made by one man. The decision to address the declaration to him was seen as surprising by some. For example, Nahum Sokolow remarked that the main reason for it being sent to Walter rather than the Zionist committee was that the Zionists had no address while Walter had a very fine one at 148 Piccadilly. The historian Cecil Roth, or Cecil, however you want to say it, described it as incongruous, but Walter had been deeply involved in the Zionist movement. He had been introduced to Chaim Wiseman and the cause through his formidable Hungarian sister-in-law, Rosica, a convinced Zionist, who had married his younger brother, Charles. Walter's commitment to Zionism was fired by his very first meeting with Wiseman. He became, he became convinced that the future of the Jews lay in Zionism and de dedicated himself to the cause. After the declaration, Wiseman wrote to him, May I offer you our heartiest thanks, thanks in making this possible. I am sure that when the history of this time will be written, it will be justifiably said that the name of the greatest house in Jewry was associated with the granting of the Magna Carta of Jewish liberties. Even if Walter's connection to the Zionist movement was somewhat unconventional, from another side of my family, Baron Edmund de Rothschild played a significant, if very different, role in the years prior to the Declaration. Now, they're saying in the Declaration, I'm going to read that to you so you know what the hell I'm talking about. Hold on a second. Where's the Balfour Declaration? The Truth? Of, no, that's not it. Okay, it's in the archive. Is it? Where did I get it? Okay, I'm going to have to find it. I don't know where I put it. Declaration. There it is. 
Oh, I got to download it. It ain't going to let me download it. I'll read on my phone. I'm reading it on my phone. Just a second. All the the notes, the show notes will have the the sources. Don't worry. As usual. All right. If you go there. Here I go. I'm going to read it now. This is the Balfour Declaration that they're referring to. The Balfour Declaration, the letter to Lord Rothschild by the British Foreign Secretary Arthur James Balfour, was aimed at Jewish support for the Allies and damn it for the Allies in the First World War. The letter, known as the Balfour Declaration, became the basis movement to create a Jewish state in Palestine. Hmm. The letter was published a week later in the Times, London of London. Foreign Office, November 2nd, 1917. We're coming up on an anniversary, isn't that cute? Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government, I don't know why I'm saying it like that, but I am, View with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Which is funny because they're saying Palestine. Palestine. Just, just remember that it's called Palestine. Anyway. Um, and we'll use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, really, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur James Balfour. And... That is the Balfour Declaration. And we go back to what I was reading. Before. Even if Walter's connection to the Zionist movement was somewhat unconventional. I read this before, but I'll read it again. From another side of my family, Baron Edmund de Rothschild played a significant and very difficult role in different role in the years prior to the Declaration. The Baron had been deeply involved in the resettling of Jews in Palestine. How do you resettle people in a place that's occupied by another people? Why are they being resettled there? It's almost as if the World War II was kind of put into effect to achieve a certain goal. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that's what it's appearing to be. In my opinion, which means nothing. But with the facts presented, it makes me wonder what the real role of that war in history was. It didn't get rid of Nazis. Still talk about them all the time, don't we? They still exist. Just like Civil War didn't get rid of slavery. Wasn't supposed to. But, you know, that's like the overall the lie that they say. There's so much... There's a lie for every war. Just remember that. Like, they lie every fucking time. Whew. Okay. Resettling of Jews in Palestine, as if that's possible. Following the dreadful pro pogroms of the 1880s in Russia, 
He was moved to support the early settlers by a number of factors, such as the increasing anti-Semitism. They love to say that, don't they? They say it all the time. And violence in the Pale of Settlement, which made a refuge for Jews from pogroms and persecution imperative. But he was looking for more than a refuge. Above all, he was inspired by the vision of the rebirth of the Jewish spirit in its ancient land. As he would later write, To the early pioneers of Rishon Lezion, I did not come to your aid because of your poverty and suffering for you, for to be sure there were many other similar cases of distress in the world. I did it because I saw in you the realizers of the results of Israel and of that ideal so dear to us all, the sacred goal of the return of Israel to its ancestral homeland. In the spirit of this vision, Edmund was inspired to support not only the physical and economic needs of the fledgling communities, but also the intellectual and spiritual dimension of their activity. For example, he saw the development of the Hebrew University as a great event in the modern history of Judaism and actively supported the revival of the Hebrew language. Indeed, Eliezer ben Yehuda, the father of modern Hebrew, dedicated his famous Hebrew dictionary to him. For all of that, his relationship with the early settlers was complex. Edmund had originally calculated that it would take between one and three years before the early settlements would achieve economic independence. Clearly, that was not to be the case. You said it, girl. Girl, you said it, dude. And the difference of outlook between the labored Zionist pioneers concerned with basic challenges of security, epidemics, and subsistence, and the barons' more sophisticated ambitions, which included the manufacture not only of wine, but also at various stages of tobacco, silk, and perfume to furnish the salons of Europe were not without tensions and often lively correspondence. Fortunately, the relationship survived the frustrations in the years that followed and contributed to an unimaginable transformation. In 1867, Mark Twain had described Palestine as a hopeless, dreary, and heartbroken land. By the time Edmund made his last visit in 1925, it was altogether different. Speaking in the great synagogue of Tel Aviv, he reminisced, when I look back on the stretch of land where I began my work, I recall how Palestine appeared in those days. A rocky, barren land full of thorns. Today it seems to me I'm in a dream. It is poignant that Edmund passed away on November 22nd, the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. His activity in Palestine and then Israel was continued by his son James and James' wife Dorothy. James and Dorothy both came to play a role in the parallel story of the diplomacy that led to the Declaration. James had grown up in France but left to study at Cambridge in part because of the anti-Semitism he saw revealed by the Dreyfus Affair. In England, he began 
he married Dorothy Pinto, a 17-year-old girl, of course he did, from an Anglo-Sephardi family who would herself would play, okay, an important part in the history, of, in the story of the Declaration. A story of how Kaim Wiseman, an immigrant chemist, came to England and through his charm and brilliance and passion, as well as his scientific contribution to the war effort, won over the British leadership is well known. Less well known is the story of how he gained the access that was crucial to his to this success. Wiseman, not surprisingly, wanted to meet with Baron Edmund, or at least his son James, to recruit their support. In the event Edmund was in France while James was convalescing from his war injuries, so it fell to the teenage Dorothy to meet him. It is not clear who was more charmed by whom, but a a relationship developed. He wrote to her no more, no less than 33 times before 19... between 1914 and 1916. And through Dorothy and James, as well as the wider family, the door to a significant circle of the British establishment was opened. Their commitment to Palestine and then Israel was unswerving. James' parting gift was to give the Knesset, Knesset building to the state of Israel. Dorothy decided to continue his work through the foundation. Yad Hanadiv, and it was her idea to offer the magnificent Supreme Court building. This commitment to Israel of these two very different branches of the Rothschild family involved, sorry, devolved to me through inheritance of the title and through Dorothy entrusting me with the chairmanship of the family foundation. Today, the foundation continues to support Israel as a healthy, vibrant, democratic society committed to Jewish values and equal opportunity for the benefit of all of its inhabitants. In carrying out its work, it recognizes the potential oh, okay. Thanks for joining. Of all individuals, religious and secular, Jewish and Arab, men and women, to bring about change, whether in the school system or academia whether in the workplace or the environment, continuing a legacy that goes back to the De- Balfour Declaration and before. Today, Yad Hanadiv employs some 40 people in Jerusalem and supports a wide range of good causes. In particular, over the last 15 years or so, we have been helping blah, blah, blah. And then they do their little spiel. And then my family and I are proud to have played a role in this story. My hope is that our commitment and involvement in this historic and inspiring mission will continue in the years ahead. Um, so that's them talking about that. And then there's an, uh, another article I wanted to go over for the Balfour Declaration. Um, and if you have anything to say, go ahead and say it. Um, but I um, am going to continue this Rothschild thing. Um, if you're new here, I'm talking about the Rothschild connection to the establishment of Israel as a, a Jewish state, Jewish state, and how it helped Zionists. Okay, the truth about the Rothschild Foundation, this is from the Jerusalem Post. So that's where that's from. Greer Fay Cashman, June 13th, 2021, is when this was. The Rothschilds separately and together are Israel's most consistent supporters and fund a myriad of projects, including one 
for children traumatized by war. Okay, so it says here, the best known Jewish family inside and outside the Jewish world are the Rothschilds, who separately and together have given thousands of millions of dollars for agricultural, industrial, medical, hmm, legislative, judicial, social welfare, educational, and cultural causes in the various countries in which they live with the state of Israel as their most common beneficiary in all of the above spheres. Moreover, members of the Rothschild family have been consistently funding projects in Israel for more than 140 years and continue to do so to this day. Not everything they do is visible. Much of their work in education, gee, I wonder why, promotion of excellence, social entrepreneurship, and training of people with leadership abilities is done in conjunction with partners and the Rothschild involvement, while known to project project administrators may not be generally known to the recipients of their goodwill, but there are also brick and mortar projects such as the Knesset building, the Supreme court building, which I mentioned before the Caesarea golf club, the Caesarea national park with its visitor center, the reconstructed ruins of the ancient Caesarea port, the center for educational technology, and more recently the impressive new national library in Jerusalem due to the to be completed in 2022, which I'm sure it's done now. All that is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many areas in which the projects would never be completed, let alone started without the Rothschild's initiative or their coming to the rescue. Prime examples include Israel's wine industry, which received a huge boost with the import of French grape varieties from Baron Edmund de Rothschild. There he is, his Chateau Lafitte, Rothschild estate and promise and prompted the establishment in the 1890s of Carmel winery, which currently exports to more than 40 countries and educational television, which preceded public and commercial television broadcasting and went to air in 1965 as a joint project of Israel's education ministry and the Rothschild foundation. Not only do the Rothschilds, sign checks, but take a hands-on role in projects that specifically speak to their hearts and minds. Baron Edmund de Rothschild from the French branch of the international banking family was the first of the Rothschilds to take an interest in the Jewish homeland. There it is. In 1880, he and his brother Alphonse began supporting Russian Jews who were targeted for pogroms. Pogroms. In 1882, he reached the conclusion that the best place for them to start their lives anew was Palestine, which already existed, as we've already gone over. An ardent Zionist, Baron de, de, whatever Rothschild, bought up land in Palestine and founded and or supported settlements such as Metula, Roshpina, Sikron, I'm not good at the pronunciation, obviously, Yaakov, Maskret, Batia, Rishon, Lizion, and others. In 1923, he founded the Palestine Jewish Colonization Association. Oh, that's nice. Through which he entrusted his son James, Armand Rothschild, to carry on his work. As a result, the map of Israel is dotted with places such as Partisana, Benyamina, Givatada, and more named for various members of the Rothschild family. In case you didn't know, 
that these cities were named after the Rothschilds. Now you know. Because of his unstinting generosity, Baron Edmund de Rothschild was known as Hanadiv, the benefactor. The Edmund de Rothschild Foundation, which operates within the framework of the international network of Edmund de Rothschild Foundations that support causes worldwide, was established by another Baron Edmund de Rothschild, who had been named for his grandfather, and who can be credited with helping to create the underpinnings for various Israeli industries without which Israel would not have been have reached the status of startup nation. Following the death of the younger Baron Edmund de Rothschild in 1997, the joint chairmanship of the foundation was passed on to his son and daughter-in-law, Baron Benjamin de Rothschild and Baroness Ariana, Ariana, whatever her name is, de Rothschild. The Baroness has been active with hands-on involvement in all aspects of the foundation's work, but most particularly with the Cesarea Development Corporation, CDC. Interesting. In January of this year, Baron Benjamin de Rothschild died of a heart attack at his home. This was in 2021, by the way. In Pregni, Switzerland, he was regarded as a visionary entrepreneur and together with his wife was an active and supremely generous philanthropist, which is another word for predator, I think, but anyway, in continuing the family legacy of closing social gaps and promoting excellence in Israeli society. At the height of the coronavirus crisis in 2020, the Edmund de Rothschild Foundation gave the Hebrew University of Jerusalem a donation of NIS $15 million, $4.2 million in dollars, U.S. dollars, for funding 60 Hebrew University teams working in coronavirus research with the aim of finding a more effective vaccine and introducing faster and cheaper methods of testing for the disease and arriving at results. At around the same time, the foundation donated NIS, <clears throat> excuse me, 50 million, 13.6 million in USD, to 22 Israeli hospitals for the purchase of respirators, monitors, ultrasound vi- devices, and safety gear for doctors, nurses, and other hospital workers. And then it says some more stuff that they've done. If there's anything really good, I'll let you know. Let's see. There's just a whole lot of shit that they're involved in. It's very interesting. Okay, so that's about it for that. So then we have that background. So the background being that there was the Rothschilds. They were instrumental in the Balfour Declaration, in establishing Israel as a state, which already was a state called Palestine. So all the Jewish people would settle there and do their Zionist thing. So that's what happened there. So then we cut to now, and people are still kind of butthurt about it, which they should be. Um... And people are still very uneducated about this. So that's what I wanted to do is go over that. And then also the Hamas side. So yeah, there are two sides to the war, right? So there's Israel and then not Palestine because no, they can't be at war with Israel. That's not allowed. Hamas is the other one. 
Well, what is Hamas? Where did Hamas come from? You might wonder. Well, if you're wondering, wonder no more, because I'll tell you. This is from the Wall Street Journal. It's in the archive. Yeah, it was archived. <laughs> this is from Andrew Higgins, 2009, January 24th. So we're going back, way back. And it's, um, I haven't read this yet, so this should be uh, illuminating. As they say, as I say, how Israel helped to spawn Hamas. Surveying the wreckage of a neighbor's bungalow hit by a Palestinian rocket, retired Israeli official Avner Cohen traces the missile's trajectory back to an enormous, stupid mistake made 30 years ago. Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation, says Mr. Cohen, a Tunisian-born Jew who worked in Gaza for more than two decades. Responsible for religious affairs in the re region until 1994, Mr. Cohen watched the Islamist movement take shape, muscle aside secular Palestinian rivals, and then morph into what it is to, what is today Hamas, a militant group that is sworn to Israel's destruction. Instead of trying to curb Gaza's Islamists from the outset, says Mr. Cohen, Israel for years tolerated and in some cases encouraged them as a counterweight to the secular nationalists of the Palestine Liberation Organization and its dominant faction, Yasser Arafat's Fatah. Israel cooperated with a crippled, half-blind cleric named Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, even as he was laying the foundations for what would become Hamas. Sheikh Yassin continues to inspire militants today during the recent war in Gaza, because this shit has been going on a while, as I said before. Hamas fighters confronted Israeli troops with Yassin's primitive rocket-propelled grenades named in honor of the cleric. Last Saturday, after 22 days of war, Israel announced a halt to the offensive. The assault was aimed at stopping Hamas rockets from falling on Israel. Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, Olmert, whatever his name is, hailed a determined and successful military operation. More than 1,200 Palestinians had died. 13 Israelis were also killed. Isn't that, that's interesting that even then there was such a, a difference, a vast difference between the casualties in Palestine versus Israel, which is still happening today. Hamas responded the next day by lobbing five rockets towards the Israeli town of Steret, a few miles down the road from Moshev Tekuma, the farming village where Mr. Cohen lives. Hamas then announced its own ceasefire. Since then, Hamas leaders have emerged from hiding and reasserted their control over Gaza, Egyptian-mediated talks aimed at a more durable truce are expected to start this weekend. And then stuff about Obama. A look at Israel's decades-long dealings with Palestinian radicals, including some little-known attempts to cooperate with the Islamists, reveals a catalog of unintended and often perilous consequences. Time and again, Israel's efforts to find a pliant 
Palestinian partner that is both credible with Palestinians and willing to eschew violence have backfired. Would-be partners have turned into foes or lost the support of their people. Israel's experience echoes that of the U.S. I was just going to say that which during the Cold War looked to Islamists as a useful ally against communism, anti-Soviet forces backed by America after Moscow's 1979 invasion of Afghanistan later mutated into Al-Qaeda, which I was just going to say. I was literally going to just say that. At stake is the future of what used to be the British mandate of Palestine, the biblical lands now comprising Israel and the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and Gaza. Since 1948, when the state of Israel was established, Israelis and Palestinians have each asserted claims over the same territory. The Palestinian cause was for decades led by the PLO, which Israel regarded as a terrorist outfit, sound familiar, and sought to crush until the 1990s when the PLO dropped its vow to destroy the Jewish state. The PLO's Palestinian rival, Hamas, led by Islamist militants, refused to recognize Israel and vowed to continue resistance. Hamas now controls Gaza, a crowded, impoverished sliver of land on the Mediterranean from which Israel pulled out troops and settlers in 2005. When Israel, well, that was before, of course. When Israel first encountered Islamists in Gaza in the 1970s and 80s, they seemed focused on studying the Quran, not on confrontation with Israel. The Israeli government officially recognized a precursor to Hamas called Mujama al-Islamiya, registering the group as a charity. It allowed Mujama members to set up an Islamic university and build mosques, clubs, and schools. Crucially, Israel often stood aside when the Islamists and their secular left-wing Palestinian rivals battled, sometimes violently, for influence in both Gaza and the West Bank. When I look back at the chain of events, I think we made a mistake, says David Hacham, who worked in Gaza in the late 1980s and early 1990s as an Arab affairs expert in the Israeli military. But at the time, nobody thought about the possible results. They never do. Israeli officials who served in Gaza disagree on how much their own actions may have contributed to the rise of Hamas. They blame the group's recent ascent on outsiders, primarily Iran, which has come up again lately, This view is shared by the Israeli government. Hamas in Gaza was built by Iran as a foundation for power and is backed through funding, through training, and through the provision of advanced weapons, Mr. Omert said last Saturday. Hamas has denied receiving military assistance from Iran. Arya Spitzen, the former head of the Israeli military's Department of Palestinian Affairs, says that even if Israel had tried to stop the Islamists sooner. He doubts it could have done much to curb political Islam, a movement that was spreading across the Muslim world. He says attempts to stop it are akin to trying to change the internal rhythms of nature. It is like saying, I will kill all the mosquitoes, but then you get even worse insects that will kill you. You break the balance. You kill Hamas, you might get Al-Qaeda. When it became clear in the early 1990s that Gaza's Islamists had mutated from a religious group into a fighting force aimed at Israel, 
particularly after they turned to suicide bombings in 1994, Israel cracked down with ferocious force. But each military assault only increased Hamas's appeal to ordinary Palestinians. The group ultimately trounced secular rivals, notably Fatah, in a 2006 election supported by Israel's main ally, the U.S. Now, one big fear in Israel and everywhere and elsewhere is that while Hamas had been hammered hard, the war might have boosted the group's popular appeal. Ishmael Hania, head of the Hamas administration in Gaza, came out of hiding last Sunday to declare that God has granted us a great victory. Most damaged from, from the war, say many Palestinians, is Fatah, now Israel's principal negotiating partner. Everyone is praising the resistance and thinks that Fatah is not part of it, says Baker Abu Baker, a longtime Fatah supporter and author of a book on Hamas. So then there's more here. Hamas traces its roots back to the Muslim Brotherhood, a group set up in Egypt in 1928. The Brotherhood believed that the woes of the Arab world sprung from a, spring from a lack of Islamic devotion. Its slogan, Islam is the solution, the Quran is our constitution. Its philosophy today underpins modern and other and often military, militantly intolerant political Islam from Algeria to Indonesia after the 1948 establishment of Israel, if you want to call it that. The Brotherhood recruited a few followers in Palestinian refugee groups, camps in Gaza and elsewhere, but secular activists came to dominate the Palestinian nationalist movement. At the time, Gaza was ruled by Egypt. The country's then-president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, was a secular nationalist who pr brutally repressed the Brotherhood. In 1967, Nasser suffered a crushing defeat when Israel triumphed in the Six-Day War. Israel took control of Gaza and also the West Bank. We were all stunned, says Palestinian writer and Hamas supporter Azam Tamimi. He was at school at the time in Kuwait and says he became close to a classmate named Khalid Mashal, now Hamas's Damascus-based political chief. The Arab defeat provided the Brotherhood with a big opportunity, says Mr. Tamimi. In, in Gaza, Israel hunted down members of Fatah and other secular PLO factions, but it dropped harsh restrictions imposed on Islamic activists by the terrorist territories previous Egyptian rulers. Fatah set up in 1964 was the backbone of the PLO, which was responsible for hijackings, bombings, and other violence against Israel. Arab states in 1974 declared the PLO the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people worldwide. And then the Muslim Brotherhood led in Gaza by Sheikh Yassin was free to spread its message openly in addition to launching various charity projects. They collected money to reprint the writings of Saeed Kut, an Egyptian member of the Brotherhood who, before his execution by President Nasser, advocated global jihad. 
He is now seen as one of the founding ideologues of militant political Islam. Mr. Cohen, who worked at the time for the Israeli government's religious affairs department in Gaza, says he began to hear disturbing reports in the mid-1970s about Sheikh Yassin from traditional Islamic clerics. He says they warned that the Sheikh had no formal Islamic training and was ultimately more interested in politics than faith. They said, keep away from Yasin. He is a big danger, recalls Mr. Cohen. Instead, Israelis, Israel's military-led administration in Gaza looked favorably on the paraplegic cleric who set up a wide network of schools, clinics, a library, and k- kindergartens. Sheikh Yassin formed the Islamic Islamist group Mujama al-Islamiyah, which was officially recognized by Israel as a charity and then in 1979 as an association. Israel also endorsed the establishment of the Islamic University of Gaza, which is now which now regards as a hotbed of militancy. The university was once was one of the first targets hit by Israeli warplanes in the recent year. Recent war Brigadier General Yosef Castel, Gaza's Israeli governor at the time, is too ill to comment, says his wife, but Brigadier General Yitzhak Segev, who took over as governor in Gaza in late 1979, says he had no illusions about Sheikh Yassin's long-term intentions or the perils of political Islam. As As Israel's former military attache in Iran, He'd watched <clears throat> Islamic fervor topple the Shah. However, in Gaza, says Mr. Segev, our main en- enemy was Fatah, and the cleric was still 100% peaceful towards Israel. Former officials say Israel was also at the time wary of being viewed as an enemy of Islam. Mr. Segev says he had regular contact with Sheikh Yassin in part to keep an eye on him. He visited his mosque and met the cleric around a dozen times. It was illegal at the time for Israelis to begin to meet anyone from the PLO. Mr. Segev later arranged for the cleric to be taken to Israel for hospital treatment. We had no problems with him, he says. Let's skip down to this. Okay, a leader of... Okay, not that part. As the fighting between rival student factions... At Berzit grew more violent. The Brigadier General Shalom Harari, then a, politi- a military intelligence officer in Gaza, says he received a call from Israeli soldiers manning a checkpoint on the road out of Gaza. They had stopped a bus containing, containing, carrying Islamic activists who wanted to join the battle against Fatah at Berzit. I said, if they want to burn each other, let them go, recalls Mr. Harari. A leader of Berzit's Islamist faction at the time was Mahmoud Musleh, now a pro-Hamas member of a Palestinian legislature elected in 2006. He recalls how usually aggressive Israeli security forces stood back and let conflagration develop. He denies any collusion between his own camp and the Israelis, but says they hoped we would become an alternative to the PLO. A year later, in 1984, when I was born, the Israeli military received a tip-off tip off from Fatah supporters from that Sheikh Yassin's 
Gaza Islamists were collecting arms, according to Israeli officials in Gaza at the time. Israeli troops raided a mosque and found a cache of weapons. Yasin was jailed. He told Israeli interrogators the weapons were for use against rival Palestinians, not Israel, according to Mr. Hakam. The military affairs expert who says he spoke frequently with jailed Islamists. The cleric was released after a year and continued to expand Mujama's reach across Gaza. Goodness me. My voice is shit. Okay. <laughs> Declaring jihad. Let's go to that part. Okay. Uh, in 1987, several Palestinians were killed in a traffic accident involving an Israeli driver triggering a wave of protests that became known as the First Intifada. Mr. Yasin and six other Mujama Islamists launched Hamas, or the Islamic Resistance Movement. Hamas's charter, released a year later, is studded with anti-Semitism and declares jihad its path and death for the cause of Allah, its most sublime belief. 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 Israeli officials still focused on Fatah and initially unaware of the Hamas charter, continued to maintain contacts with the Gaza Islamists. Mr. Hacham, the, bil- the military or Arab affairs expert, remembers taking one of Hamas's founders, Mahmoud Zahar, to meet Israel's then defense Man- minister, Yusak Rabin, as part of regular consultations between Israeli officials, and Palestinians not linked to the PLO. Mr. Zahar, the only Hamas founder known to be alive today, is now the group's senior political leader in Gaza. In 1989, Hamas carried out its first attack on Israel, abducting and killing two soldiers. Israel arrested Sheikh Yassin and sentenced him to life. It later rounded up more than 400 suspected Hamas activists, including Mr. Zahar, and deported them to southern Lebanon. There they hooked up with Hezbollah, which you'll hear about a lot now, too. The Iran-backed A-team of anti-Israeli militancy. Many of the deportees later returned to Gaza. Hamas built up its arsenal and escalated its attacks while all along maintaining the social network that underpinned its support in Gaza. Meanwhile, its enemy, the PLO, dropped its commitment to Israel's destruction and started negotiating a two-state settlement. Hamas accused it of a treachery. This accusation found increasing resonance as Israel kept developing settlements on occupied Palestinian land, particularly the West Bank, though the West Bank had passed to the nominal control of a new Palestinian authority, it was still dotted with Israeli military checkpoints and a growing number of Israeli settlers. Unable to uproot a now entrenched Islamist network that had suddenly replaced the PLO as its main foe, Israel tried to decapitate it. It started targeting Hamas leaders. This too made no dent in Hamas's support and sometimes even helped the group. In 1997, for example, Israel's Mossad spy agency tried to poison Hamas's exiled political leader, Mr. Mashal, who was then living in Jordan. The agents got caught, and to get them out of a Jordanian jail, 
Israel agreed to release Sheikh Yassin. The cleric, cleric set off on a tour of the Islamic world to raise support and money. He returned to Gaza to a hero's welcome. Ephraim Halavi, Halavi, a veteran Mossad officer who negotiated the deal that released Sheikh Yassin, says the cleric's freedom was hard to swallow, but Israel had no choice. After the fiasco in Jordan, Mr. Halavi was named director of Mossad, a position he held until, until 2002. Two years later, Sheikh Yassin was killed by an Israeli airstrike. Mr. Halavi has in recent years urged Israel to negotiate with Hamas. He says that Hamas can, Hamas can be crushed, but he believes that the price of crushing Hamas is a price that Israel would prefer not to pay. When Israel's authoritarian secular neighbor Syria launched a campaign to wipe out Muslim Brotherhood militants in the early 1980s, it killed more than 20,000 people, many of them civilians. In its recent war in Gaza, Israel didn't set the destruction of Hamas as its goal, which is now its goal, I guess. It limited its stated objectives to halting the Islamist rocket fire and battering their overall military capacity. At the start of the Israeli occupation in December, Defense Minister Ehud Barak, who you'll see eventually later, (laughs) told Parliament that the goal was to deal Hamas a severe blow, a blow that will cause it to stop its hostile actions from Gaza at Israeli citizens and soldiers. Walking back to his house from the rubble of his neighbor's home, Mr. Cohen, the former religious affairs official in Gaza, curses Hamas and also what he sees as missteps that allowed Islamists to put down deep roots in Gaza. He recalls a 1970s meeting with a traditional Islamic cleric who wanted Israel to stop cooperating with the Muslim Brotherhood followers of Sheikh Yassin. He told me, you are going to have big regrets in 20 or 30 years. He was right. Okay. Then there's this one. (laughs) And this is more recent. This is from October 8th, 2023. And thank you for joining me. Okay. Anyway. For years, Netanyahu propped up Hamas. Now it's blown up in our faces from Tal Schneider. And this is an op-ed from the Times of Israel. The premier's policy of treating the terror group as a partner at the expense of Abbas and Palestinian statehood has resulted in wounds that will take Israel years to heal, heal from. Okay, and it says here, for years, the various governments led by Benjamin Netanyahu took an approach that divided power between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, bringing Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to his knees while making moves that propped up the Hamas terrorist group, terror group. Sorry, The idea was to prevent Abbas or anyone else in the Palestinian Authority's West Bank government from advancing toward the establishment of a Palestinian state. Thus, Amid this bid to impair Abbas, Hamas was upgraded from a mere terror group to an organization with which Israel held indirect negotiations via Egypt and one that was allowed to receive infusions of cash from abroad. 
Hamas was also included in discussions about increasing the number of work permits Israel granted to Gazan laborers, which kept money flowing into Gaza, meaning food for families and the ability to purchase basic products. Israeli officials said these permits, which allow Gazan laborers to earn higher salaries than they would in the enclave, were a powerful tool to help preserve calm. Toward the end of Netanyahu's fifth government in 2021, approximately 2,000 of 3,000 work permits were issued to to Gazans. This number climbed to 5,000, and during the Bennett-Lapid government war, damn it, I cannot talk right, I'm sorry, rose sharply to 10,000. Since Netanyahu returned to power in January 2023, the number of work permits has soared to nearly 20,000. Additionally, since 2014, Netanyahu-led governments have practically turned a blind eye to the incendiary balloons and rocket fire from Gaza. Meanwhile, Israel has allowed suitcases holding millions in Qatari cash to enter Gaza through its crossings since 2018 in order to maintain its fragile ceasefire with the Hamas rulers of the Strip. Most of the time, Israeli policy was to treat the Palestinian Authority as a burden and Hamas as an asset. Far-right M.K. Bezalel Smaltrich, now the finance minister in the hardline government and leader of the Religious Zionism Party, said so himself in 2015. According to various reports, Netanyahu made a similar point at a Likud faction meeting in early 2019 when he was quoted as saying that those who oppose a Palestinian state should support the transfer of funds to Gaza because maintaining the separation between the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza would prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. While Netanyahu does not make these kind of statements publicly or officially, his words are in line with the policy that he implemented. The same messaging was repeated by right-wing commentators who have, who may have received briefings on the matter or talked to Likud higher-ups and understood the message. Bolstered by this policy, Hamas grew stronger and stronger until Saturday, Israel's Pearl Harbor, hey, another, another false flag event, <laughs> the bloodiest day in its history, when, his, when terrorists crossed the border, slaughtered hundreds of Israelis, and kidnapped an unknown number under the cover of thousands of rockets fired at towns throughout the country's south, south and, and center. <clears throat> the country has known ta- attacks and wars, but never on such a scale in a single morning. One thing is clear, the concept of indirectly strengthening Hamas while tolerating sporadic attacks and minor military operations every few years went up in smoke Saturday. Just a few days ago, Asaf Pozolov, a reporter for the Cannes public broadcaster, tweeted the following. The Islamic Jihad organization has started a noisy exercise very close to the border in which they practiced launching missiles, breaking into Israel, and kidnapping soldiers. The difference between Islamic Jihad and Hamas doesn't matter much at this point. As far as the state of Israel is concerned, the territory is under the control of Hamas and it is responsible for all the training and activities there. Hamas became stronger and used the auspices of peace that Israelis so longed for as cover for its training and hundreds of Israelis have paid with their lives for this massive omission. 
The terror inflicted on the civilian population in Israel is so enormous that the wounds from it will not heal for years, a challenge compounded by the dozens abducted into Gaza. Judging by the way Netanyahu has managed Gaza in the last 13 years, it is not certain that there will be a clear policy going forward. But they give him a little too much credit because he actually is a piece of shit and everything. So he... uh, he did this shit on purpose. They do this on purpose. I don't know why people are surprised. Okay, so another thing about this, and we'll move on, but this is from WikiLeaks. They reposted this recently. Israeli Defense Intelligence Chief Amos, Amos, what? Amos Yadlin in 2007 said, Israel would be happy if Hamas took over Gaza because IDF could then deal with Gaza as a hostile state. Going on to downplay significance of Iran and Gaza as long as they don't have a port. And then regarding predictions of war with Syria this summer, he recalled the lead up to the 1967 war, which we, which he said was provoked by the Soviet ambassador in Israel. But as both Israel and Syria are in a state of high alert, so war could happen easily, even though neither side is seeking it. And now they're like blobbing bombs at each other. So, well, I don't know about each other, but. Israel's definitely lobbing bombs in Syria. And then there's a bunch of shit happening in that region in regards to terror. Okay, so what else? Okay. This all is very reminiscent, like I said, of Al-Qaeda and all that stuff. So let's, let's actually get to a little more of this information. This is from the White House briefing from 12 days ago. This was on October 10th. So a couple of days after the event, the the catalyzing event that started all of this Israel-Hamas war bullshit. Trying to see who has not. Get Garrett, I know you haven't got a call. Uh, There have been some clashes uh, across the country and demonstrations amongst protesters. in the aftermath of what's, or in, amid what's happening in Israel. Um, how concerned is the administration that these clashes could turn violent? And do you have a message for demonstrators more broadly? So look, I mean, Jake also spoke to our focus and our um, the importance of making sure that the Jewish uh, community here uh, is protected, making sure that there aren't, uh, there aren't acts of violence. We're always going to denounce any act of violence against any community. Uh, and certainly going to continue to show our support uh, and going to be vigilant on that. Uh, Don't have anything else to go beyond that, but we are certainly uh, monitoring, keeping an eye on all of this, uh, and uh, we're going to continue to support uh, the community uh, here. We have to to start, we have to, go ahead, Phil. What is the president's message to- Okay, the pool should should start leaving and then we're gonna take this last question. Thank you, Uh, What is the president's message to members of Congress who seem to be equating the Hamas terror attack with actions that were previously taken by Israel. Say that one more time, everybody's moving around. I apologize. Uh, what is the president's message to members of Congress who seem to be equating the Hamas terror attack with actions that were previously taken by Israel? Look, here's the thing. And which 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 congressional members? Some members of Congress who have called for a ceasefire and they have not gone as far as uh, backing the administration's call for support for Israel. So look, uh, I've seen some of those statements this weekend, uh, and we're going to continue to be very clear. We believe they're wrong. 
Uh, we believe they're repugnant and we believe they're disgraceful. Uh, our, our condemnation belongs squarely with terrorists who have brutally murdered, raped, kidnapped hundreds, hundreds of Israelis. Uh, there can be no equivocation about that. There are not two sides here. There are not two sides. Uh, President Biden has been clear on where he has stood. You heard him. You heard from him directly uh, today. You heard from him also on Saturday on this. There's been multiple statements from this president, uh, and he's taking action to provide additional support to ensure that Israel has the has what they need to defend themselves. All right. So. Yeah, knowing what we know about Hamas and everything, it's really hard to take any of this shit seriously. And they, the outrage, the fake outrage about it, of it all, you know. So let's move on to the next briefing that happened a day later, a dollar short. Um, October 10th, this is... That'd be same day, but anyway, I guess it's earlier or later in the day or something. Later in the day. Um, This has a question at the 2.15. Well, that can't be right. (laughs) I don't know. Oh. I think this is a different one. Oh. Anywho. I'll find it. It's fine. There's a question from Saeed about Palestine. I'll find it. I'll just look for the guy. I thought I had the right notes, but I do not. This dude's such a piece of shit. Well, fuck. 215. That makes no sense. There he is. I see the guy. I just need to get the guy. Awkward fun cast. It's in the title. Somebody married this guy. Wow. I don't have any empathy, well, sympathy or feeling for any of the puppets in the Biden regime or any other regime trying to keep us at war, constant war. I wish somebody would tell me where the fuck this is. They're not going to tell me because there's no comments. Nobody watches these. 4,000 views. Okay. Here we go. Okay, here's Max. Let's start with Max. All right. As soon as this gears up. Going well. Come on, man. YouTube, why are you being a dick? Let me try again. Shut up. All right. These attacks. It is what any country would do if they saw children children being dragged uh, uh, away as hostages, if they saw children being slaughtered, if they saw people that were a music festival being gunned down in mass. Any country would respond forcefully. We support uh, Israel's right to do it. We think it's appropriate to do it. They have to be able to defend and secure their country. Go ahead. Thank you. 
Ghazi Hamid, a Hamas spokesman, meanwhile told the BBC that the group had direct backing for the attack on Israel from Iran. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, we have seen those those quotes. We don't have in, any independent information to verify that. If another Iranian proxy on the region then are joining this battlefield with Israel, what will be reaction? Uh, I'm not going to speak to hypotheticals, but the message that we have delivered very clearly from the president on down uh, is that no entity hostile to Iran should consider entering this conflict. Go ahead. In, in March, you uh, condemned Israel's finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, for calling for wiping the Palestinian village of Huara off the map. Uh, this week, we've heard the defense minister of Israel, Yoav Gallant, declare that he's fighting human animals in Gaza as Israel cuts off the gas, the water, and the electricity. We've heard Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, declare uh, that all hiding places will be turned to rubble in a besieged coastal enclave where there are one million children. We've heard Ariel Kalner, who is a member of Knesset from the ruling Likud party, call for a Nakba 2.0, which is essentially a call for genocide and the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians as 850 are dead in Gaza. So what do you think so of that rhetoric let, in light of your let, previous let, condemnation? Let me say a few things about that. Number one, um, we expect as we said, that Israel will conduct its operations in accordance with international law. Number two, there are going to be a number of statements made uh, over the course of this conflict. And when we have disagreements with them, we will um, make those known privately. Number three, though, some, let me just let me just let me just speak to this. Number three, some of the questions I'm getting today do seem to ignore the fact that Israel just had hundreds of its citizens killed, people who were taken hostage and pretend that Israel shouldn't be able to conduct any kind of, let me just say, shouldn't, shouldn't, just shouldn't, let me just, let me just, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me finish, you know what, again, let me, you asked, you asked, you asked a question, I will answer the question, so I'm going to start by answering the previous question that was interrupted. I will say some of the questions seem to pretend that Israel should not be able to conduct operations to defend itself and hold accountable the terrorists who killed civilians. That is not Israel's policy. That is not our policy. It is something that we would ve vehemently disagree with. Israel has the right to secure its country the way any country does. It has the right to defend itself against terrorism. It has the right to hold terrorists accountable. Uh, and I will say, uh, ultimately, the, the Hamas terrorists who launched these operations. There is no one who has more disregard for Palestinian civilian life than those terrorists. Because those terrorists, let me finish, let me finish. Those terrorists launched this activity. Those terrorists, I, I, again, we have a lot of new, we seem to have a lot of new people. Those terrorists launched this activity knowing that there would be retaliation, knowing that Israel would have to defend itself as any country. He's like, who invited you? <laughs> did knowing that it would lead to the unfortunate loss of civilian lives by their pals, by Palestinians, and they did anyway. Let me go. Go ahead. It's amazing. So, so baby killing is okay here. We always mourn the loss of civilian life. It is an, it is an unfortunate circumstance every time it happens. And as I just said, the, the Hamas terrorists who launched this terrorist attack knowing that it would produce the loss of, of not just direct Israeli lives, who they took in their incursions across the border, but also the loss of Palestinian civilian life. Um, uh, uh, they, they ultimately 
bear the responsibility for those acts. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna. I. I. just. I just did do that. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna. I am gonna. I would ask you not to talk over your colleague. Go ahead. Thank you. Is there a latest U.S. assessment? I just did. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let me. There was a. There was a little talking over you. Let me just go ahead. Go again. If you don't mind. Is there a latest U.S. assessment on Saudi's position on the potential normalization deal with Israel, and especially after? He is just like so smarmy too. Like his, he's such a smirky little fuck. He says something else later. Let me see what I got. Normalization, uh, which, as I said, we believe brings stability to the region. Go, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Again, I would ask you to stop putting words in my mouth. Go ahead. Thank you, Matt. Uh, I was just uh, one quick question: Is that uh, President Biden's two-state uh, theory was very much appreciated in many countries in the South East Asia side? Is for now, after this incident has happened, is that has gone a little bit on the back burner side? Uh, no, that's my one question, and then I have one follow-up. No, it continues to be our policy, and that we will uh, continue to support. Okay, and then the second one is just, um, you know, because of Taliban, we had a lot of uh, bomb blasts. TTP had many blasts in Pakistan, where the U.S. bases were there at that time, and the U.S. could have taken very severe actions, uh, you know, against them, where... At least in my city, we had in one school 120 kids being slaughtered, you know, more than several blasts where more than 100 people were dead. Uh, but the U.S. did not do something like that in Afghanistan to, to uh, you know, settle things with it. Don't you think because of U.S. not condemning these things, at least the humanitarian part of the U.S. impression, at least around the world, is going like, don't so, you think for the humanitarian, so it should be a little I would softer. say that we always condemn acts of terrorism uh, anywhere that they occur. Yeah, whenever they're not conducting them. ...in the world. And as I believe you and I have discussed before, we have met recently with our Pakistani counterparts to discuss how we can increase our terrorism uh, cooperation uh, so that they can uh, affect... <laughs> terrorism cooperation, that's about... What you should be calling it. Yep, that's what it should be called. Good, good. Good title there. Counterterrorism inside their borders. Alex, I said I'd come back to you and then we're going to wrap up here. I'll come to you and then we'll wrap up. Well, that's absolutely not true. Our only goal uh, in uh, the in um, the South Caucasus uh, uh, the relationship between Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan is to uh, ensure a la lasting peace and stability, and of course to ensure that the humanitarian uh, uh, needs and rights of the people of Nagorno-Karabakh Karabakh are protected. And, uh, as you know, I would refer you to um, the embassy for any further details on that question. And no, I don't have specific readouts of, of uh, 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 special envoy bonus conversations. Go ahead. No. Uh, anyway, like that was the Department of State daily press briefing on October 10th, 2023. Enjoy that at your leisure. Okay, then I found this gem. 
and then we'll move from Hamas to kind of a reminder of history. So this is from CNBC Television. We must eliminate Hamas, former commander of Israel's elite military technology unit. Also keep in mind, they have the most technologically advanced military you can fucking have. Um, Shit ton of money. Getting more of it, allegedly, if Congress has any say. And Congress is in shambles right now because we have no Speaker of the House at the moment for the Republicans. And so let's get to this. What does this say? I forgot. Let me check. So I'm looking for a specific part. Well, I guess I'll find it since I didn't put it in my notes. The terrorist attack Dun-dun. in Israel and Israel's re- is that we must. Let me go back here. Um, they won't be pretty. Um, but I think it's important. I think it's important. It's critical for Israel, but I think it's important for the rest of the free world. Um, so, you know, this is going to be long, uh, but we're resolved and we're going to win. I do, I, I do want to ask you about the business community and the tech community, but but just... Okay, to preface, this is Nadav Zafrir speaking. He, was, he previously served as commander of Unit 8200, Israel's elite military technology unit. And they're talking to him. And there's a lot of propaganda on this network, like a shit ton. So this is just one piece. But just first, because you you were such a a high-ranking member of the intelligence unit in Israel, I'm curious about your intelligence reflections of the failure to detect what was happening and and what lessons can be learned there and how it happened. Yeah, look, obviously, uh, uh, we did not get the job done. I mean, there's no question about it, uh, but there will be time to investigate. The time is not now. You know, a lot of my... It's not now. Saying, you know, is this like 9-11? My answer is, yes. that, you know, 10-7-23 Saturday morning is a little bit like 9-11, but the perpetrators are in Brooklyn. You know, they're across the river. So we, we just don't have the time to focus on what went wrong. We need to stay resolved. We have to be focused um, and, I, and I think what we're doing here is not just important for us. It's, it's a message to the rest of the world. And, it's not, and, and we're not fighting the Palestinian people. We're fighting Hamas leadership, who the atrocities that uh, went on on, on Saturday uh, 10-7 are just uh, almost unfathomable or unfathomable. And so we, we have to do what has to be done right now. Nadav, you, you mentioned the Palestinian people. I mean, what is the thinking right now regarding... Uh, their ability to get out of a, a, an area that is obviously going to become a war zone if, if things go the way you're describing. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, uh, you probably uh, uh, heard President Biden's speech, which I think uh, gives us, uh, uh, um, you know, the legitimacy uh, uh, uh. that we have right now to operate. The uh, uh, the fact that we, we not just have the legitimacy to operate, but that we must. You know, not this is not just about the Palestinian people. This is not just about Hamas. This is about the Middle East, uh, and this is about being there in the, on the right side of history. Look, don't forget, uh, um, more than a thousand miles from where I'm standing right now in Tel Aviv, in Tehran, uh, that's where the shots are being called. They don't only have Hamas, they have Hezbollah up north waiting uh, uh, for the right time. Uh, and we're ready uh, to take on uh, uh, both. Uh, but, uh, know, honestly, I think that the people that have suffered the most uh, before 10 23 Saturday morning are the Palestinian people themselves by this brutal terrorist leadership. And what we learned the hard way, and we paid such a dear price that it's, again, almost impossible to explain, 
um, is that you cannot reason with terrorists. You just cannot do it anymore. And continuing our coverage. Only when you want them to play a role can you reason with them, as we've discussed. Um, I'm going to get to uh, 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 face the nation and leader McConnell and his his comments. But before we get there, because it's going to be very interesting. Wow. Um, let me see if I can go to their page here. They were putting something on Twitter, but I don't know if I can find it on here too. I hope I can find it on here too. I don't think I can. Well, maybe I can. I'll have to find it. Oh, I love finding things. Thanks. But that's what I'm here for. Find the bullshit. Point it out. All right, I'm going to put this on hold. Maybe the AI can step in here and let me know which chapter is. No, I can't. Okay, cool. I'll figure it out if I have to watch the whole goddamn thing. I'm not going to watch the whole goddamn thing. I'm going to put on the subtitles because that's a good way to do it. Even if it's auto-generated, I'll understand where we're at. And I will go from there. So in the meantime, let's see here. Da -da -da. There's so much propaganda. I'm trying to get to the right thing that I wanted to, to show. This is the newest uh, development. Okay. Oh, it looks like he's on the beginning of this. That's perfect. I'll just go back here. Okay. Yes. Okay, I'm going to get to that. But let's go to the past, shall we? Because we need to know Mr. what Speaker, happened in the past. The present to be able to prepare for the future. So this is from January 29th, 2002. You'll remember that that was after 9-11, many months after 9-11, and it was the State of the Union Address with good old Bushy Bush, W. So let's go to 1638 first, and we'll see what he says there. See if anything sounds a little familiar to you of the rhetoric here has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons nuclear for over a decade this is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children this is a regime that agreed to international inspections then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and growing danger. They could provide these arms to terrorists 
no. giving them the means to match their hatred. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. In any of these cases, the price of indifference would be catastrophic. We will work closely with our coalition to deny terrorists and their state sponsors the materials, technology, and expertise to make and deliver weapons of mass destruction. You know, because we found that. That that was found. Okay, let me see if I can find anything. Here it is. Got it. Well, this is one of them. <laughs> now, let me see if I can... in a brutal way in the last week. Mm -hmm. So I think it requires a worldwide approach rather than trying to take parts of it out. It's all connected. The Chinese and the Russians said they're now friends forever. Iranian mm -hmm. drones are being used in Ukraine and against the Israelis. There's resistance among some Republicans, including here in the Senate, about bundling things together. Is it possible to pass Ukraine aid if it's not tied to Israel? I just think that's a mistake. I, I mean, I know there are some Republicans in the Senate and maybe more in the House that mm -hmm. think U Ukraine is somehow different. I view it as all interconnected. And you've said that you believe there is enough oversight of aid to Ukraine. Why hasn't that persuaded some members of the Ukraine? of the Republican caucus. If you look at the Ukraine assistance, let's let's talk about where the money's really going. The significant it's being spent in the United States in 38 different states, replacing the weapons that we sent to Ukraine with more modern weapons. So we're rebuilding our industrial base. That's what President Biden's seeking to do. It's it's correct. No Americans are getting killed in Ukraine. We're Re rebuilding our industrial base. Uh, the Ukrainians are destroying the army of one of our biggest rivals. I have a hard time finding anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I think it's wonderful that they're defending themselves. And also the notion that the Europeans are not doing enough. They've done almost $90 billion. They're housing a bunch of refugees who escaped. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that our NATO allies in Europe have done quite a lot. So basically, he admits there that this is a proxy war. Sound like you have a lot in common with President Biden and his worldview. They do. Just laid out. Well, not on the domestic side, but on on this issue that we were discussing today, we're generally in the same place. Because say it with me. War is bipartisan. On the issue of Israel, that does seem to be uh, a unifying issue for many Republicans. Um, and I want to ask you about this $10 billion request the president is making. Do you think there need to be any provisions in there uh, that would account for the risk of human rights, human rights violations uh, in Gaza? Well, we want to make sure we're not sending money to Hamas, I can tell you that. But there are genuine humanitarian needs mm -hmm. uh, for the people in Gaza who are not Hamas. 
who've been thrown under the bus by what Hamas did, innocent people. But we, we want to be careful about how the money is spent, be sure it actually gets where it's supposed to get. For any military aid that's going to Israel right now, do you think there needs to be need to be strings attached? Israel's our strongest ally in the world. Uh, we trust them, and we have a very tight relationship with them, both on the intelligence side and the military side. Oh, we know. So I, I don't think the kind of oversight we're talking about for Ukraine, for example, would be necessary for Israel. You know, to do all of these things, you need a partner in Congress. Uh, Senator Welch said you are the only Republican negotiator right now because of all the disarray in the House. How can you deliver on this at a time when you're saying it's essential? Well, I hope we're going to have a speaker sometime soon. And we... Before we, November 17th? We, we need one. Funding? We need one because the House can't do anything without a speaker. And... Um, it's a it's a problem, but I hope it's going to get solved pretty quickly. Is there anyone in the house? He sure does like like smiling. He's just smiling, smiling, smiling during this interview. It's like he's having the best day ever. Good for you, sir. I guess this is from Face the Nation McConnell's interview with this chick Lazzarini. What's her name? Fully. Oh no, that's about. Oh, that's the other interview my bad i don't know who this chick is but they should really put her name here but anyway um yeah him talking about israel oh israel doesn't have to play the same by the same rules and any other nation and we always will support them and trust them and there you go who can lead the republicans look i'm not an expert on the house i have my hands full here in the senate and we're going to do our job and hope the house can get functional here sometime soon there is no current U.S. ambassador to Israel right now. Um, and some of your Republican colleagues have voiced concerns about President Biden's nominee. Do you have concerns about Jack Lew? Uh, he is a very controversial nominee because of his relationship with the Iran nuclear deal, which was opposed. Okay, I'm going to skip that part, get to the part where I'm trying to get to. All right. Make it law so that it can't be undone. Look, I think we need to get tougher with Iran, and I do think the weakness of both the Obama administration and the Biden administration is the thought that somehow we could do business with Iran on something. And I think it's pretty clear we can't. I mean, they're funding Hezbollah, Hamas, creating problems all over the Middle East, and um, we shouldn't be doing any business with them. President Biden said he's going to hold Iran accountable. What yeah, do you think well, that means? I think the proof will be what are we going to do to hold them accountable? And uh, that's, it's got to be credible. You, can, you can't, on the one hand, be negotiating with Iran on some kind of nuclear deal that you know they won't keep and then turn around and uh, de declare that you're going to get tougher with Iran. I think, number one, talking to the Iranians about any kind of nuclear deal. Number two, don't give them the $6 billion. And number three, back up the Israelis in every conceivable way after this attack by Iran-sponsored Hamas. 
You do, you oppose all diplomacy with Iran. It's not a question of mm -hmm. whether you ever talk to them or not, but it's a question of what what do you do? What do you do? And clearly, the nuclear deal that the Obama administration agreed to, and that the Biden administration tried to re-connect, mm -hmm. uh, is, is not the way to go. There's an axis of evil in the world, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And we need to stand up to the axis of evil, not try to do business with them. So you heard that. Okay. That was important to think about, to, to hear. Okay, let's go back to Bushy, Bushy Bush, W23. All right, here he starts to talk about some stuff. Now, he talked about the axis of evil before. By the way, so bipartisan, so war is such... War is the most bipartisan thing. You watch these damn speeches, these State of the Union addresses, and everybody's clapping. And they hate each other, but they're clapping for each other. It's bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's the same beast. Two heads, same beast. the largest increase in defense spending in two decades. Because I'm sure it does, because let's remember, September 2000, there was a document published which was called Rebuilding America's Defenses. That was a year before 9-11. Just a coinkadink. Talked about having a, a new Pearl Harbor so they could have more money for war. Just, just a coinkadink. I'll talk about that in a new episode, promo, of... Uh, my super awkward fun review and it will be of the lone gunman pilot so look out for that after season wait is that next no no, no that's after season eight so we're doing it out of order so it'll be season eight of the x-files part one and part two coming up and in november and then we'll have the lone gunman pilot which is 9 11 predictive programming and we'll watch that and discuss it then okay so back to this so this is after 9-11 they need more war money they're gonna get it blah 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 because while the price of freedom and security is high it is never too high whatever it costs to defend our country we will pay and we did We never means his buddies, though. It never means the people at the top. We means you. Whenever they say we, they mean you. You will have to pay. And you will pay. Next priority in my budget is to do everything possible protect our citizens and strengthen our nation against the ongoing threat of another attack. Time and distance from the events of September the 11th will not make us safer unless we act on its lessons. America is no longer protected by vast oceans. 
We are protected from attack only by vigorous action abroad and increased vigilance at home. My budget nearly doubles funding for a sustained strategy of homeland security focused on four key areas, bioterrorism, emergency response, airport and border security, and improved intelligence. And it all worked very well because we love all of those things, right? We will develop vaccines to fight anthrax and other deadly diseases. Great job. We'll increase funding to help states and communities train and equip our heroic police and firefighters. And terrorists. improve intelligence collection and sharing, expand patrols at our borders, strengthen the security of air travel, and use technology to track the arrivals and departures of visitors to the United States. Yay! No freedom. Fuck freedom. Freedom sucks, right? Everybody hates freedom. Homeland security will make America not only stronger, but in many ways better. Knowledge gained- It could just make it great again, no? No? Okay. ...from bioterrorism research will improve public health. Strong- Great job, great job. Stronger police and fire departments will mean safer neighborhoods. Stricter border enforcement will help combat illegal drugs. Just excellent job. Like, Fast and Furious never happened. Oh, that was the wrong white guy. And as government works to better secure our homeland, America will continue to depend on the eyes and ears of alert citizens. Be afraid. A few days before Christmas, an airline flight attendant spotted a passenger lighting a match. The crew and passengers quickly subdued the man who had been trained by Al-Qaeda and was armed with explosives. Who trained Al-Qaeda? Oh, wait. Anyway, let's move on to 40. We're wrapping it up, I promise. Courage and compassion, strength and resolve. As I've met the heroes, hugged the families, and looked into the tired faces of rescuers, I have stood in awe of the American people. And I hope you'll join me. I hope you'll join me in expressing thanks to one American for the strength and calm and comfort she brings to our nation in crisis. Our first lady, Laura Bush. They always have this lovely first lady that they just love. Everybody's like, oh, this first lady is the best. And she's doing this and that and the other. Like, who gives a shit? Like, it, it's all smoke and mirrors. Okay, and then 46 time of war to lead the world toward the values that will bring lasting peace because you can only achieve lasting peace through ever lasting war for never ending wars again i want to say iraq there are troops still in iraq they just had a, a shitty day but there were troops there 
There are troops in Syria, American troops, all over the place. There's like a military base everywhere. <laughs> in at least a thousand places. I don't know. But a shit ton. And these wars continue because they're good for... for they're, they profit off of the wars. They profit off of the wars. We know this. And Lockheed Martin is having a really great month, is all I have to say. All fathers and mothers in all societies want their children to be educated and live free from poverty and violence. No people on earth yearn to be oppressed or aspire to servitude or eagerly await the midnight knock of the secret police. Who the fuck are the secret police? <laughs> anyone doubts this, let them look to Afghanistan. Where yes, the Islamic street let's look at Afghanistan. <laughs> Great job there, too. We greeted the fall of tyranny with song and celebration. Let the skeptics look to Islam's own rich history with its centuries of learning and tolerance and progress. America will lead by defending liberty and justice because they are right and true and unchanging for all people everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, America. That's just an example of like what propaganda we had to deal with in the early 2000s that we are being subjected to now. And it's like they keep saying, don't do anything. Don't do anything. And we're going to put cops everywhere at all these protests, but don't do anything. You'll get in trouble if you do something. Don't do anything. While at the same time, you know, they want somebody to do something. They want it. They want a false flag event. Or they'll, if they get, if they, if they want a false flag event, they're going to make one happen. They don't mind, as I've said before and shown, demonstrated many times, they don't mind breaking a few eggs to make an omelet. And that's, we don't matter. But ultimately, we are not human beings to them. They say human animals about the the enemy in Israel. Well, we're less than that. We're like fucking rats. And this is a WEF war. I haven't mentioned WEF, but I'm getting a WEF. This is a WEF war. There are WEF people involved. Benjamin Netanyahu is a WEFer. Joe Biden is a WEFer. And... It's just, every war is pretty much a WEF war at this point. And WEF is like the new Bilderberg, I feel like. But it's in public. They went public. And there's other things going on. Like, what I was saying is, like, the propaganda, you just got to get away from it as much as possible. View things as they are. Go out into the world. Enjoy yourself. I had a doozy of a week because... I hurt myself a week ago, over a week ago now, but I fell and it was embarrassing. And then I was like healing and everything. And then I fucking burnt myself yesterday on noodles, like making pasta. And I burnt myself with pasta because it fell. And I was just like, ah, oh, shit, here we go again. <laughs> Gotta put the gauze pad back on. Now we got to burn. So I guess this is a metaphor, really, <laughs> because we keep getting into these big conflicts 
and we keep putting our money into it, whether we like it or not, because we don't get a say, right? So we're funding these conflicts that end up making a bigger conflict or exacerbating that conflict in some way. And then we get hurt again in the same fucking place because it always happens in the same fucking place. Their playbook never changes, it feels like. Their plays never change. It's just the players sometimes change and sometimes they don't. Sometimes we see people over and over again, like Fauci, remember? So, and Benny, 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 Benny Benjamin Netanyahu. We see him over and over again because he keeps getting back in there, right? So... He's back in and he's the prime minister. And then we have all these other players and it's just ridiculous because it's history. It's history repeating. It doesn't even just rhyme. It's just repeating. <laughs> this is the same shit, different decade and same tactics. Just don't fall for it, you know? And I hope you will join me for the next episode, which will be a lot less heavy I hope this hasn't been too heavy. I mean, I try not to be too heavy on it. We're trying to have some fun. <laughs> it's hard to have fun when there are so many narratives going around. And it's hard to point at the history of what's happened and why it's happening. But I'm trying my best. And I I really thank you all for, for listening and join me for the YouTube stream because that'll be more interactive in so much that I'll have visuals and stuff. And that's always fun. So we'll go over atrocity propaganda a little more than I think I do want to say something about it, though. Well, I got you here. Let me get it. Um, let's see what I said here. Okay, so I found it on this website called Wikiwand, which I've never gone to, but it had some good insights. All right, where is Wikiwand? Stay with me. Okay, there it is. All right, so a definition for atrocity propaganda, which you're seeing everywhere right now online, it is. it doesn't just come from World War II and all of that. Like, it's been throughout history used. But it says here, Atrocity propaganda is the spreading of information about the crimes committed by an enemy, which can be factual, but often includes or features deliberate fabrications or exaggerations. This can include, this can involve photographs, videos, illustrations, interviews, and other forms of information, representations, representation, presentation, sorry, or reporting. The inherently violent nature of war means that exaggeration and invention of atrocities often becomes the main staple of propaganda, according to Understanding Public Opinion, a guide for newspapermen and newspaper readers from 1952, Curtis McDougall. That's the um, reference there. Patriotism is often not enough to make people hate the enemy, and propaganda is also necessary, according to... Sidney Rogerson, 1938, Propaganda in the Next War, Great Britain. So great are the psychological resistances to war in modern nations, wrote Harold Laswell, that every war must appear to be a war of defense against a menacing, murderous aggressor. There must be no ambiguity about who the public is to hate. 
Human testimony may be unreliable even in ordinary circumstances, but in wartime, it can be further muddled by bias, sentiment, and misguided patriotism. So keep that in mind as you go forward in your adventures um, daily. So yeah, my birthday is coming up next week. So I'm going to celebrate that in Miami. Like I said, the show is coming up. The season eight, part one, super awkward fun review. Go to YouTube and type in E-L-L-E-L-A-T-H-A-M, my name, or AKA L Latham, and you will find my channel at uh, AKA L Latham. You won't find it otherwise. But um, that is where the playlist will be for the X-Files reviews. So check that out. It's me looking at predictive programming and pointing it out and doing my little reviews of the show. I finished it and it's, it was a lot, <laughs> but it will be going until the end of the year, I think. So keep looking there for updates on when the next premiere will be because they premiere, they don't just get uploaded. So enjoy that. And then uh, Super Awkward Fun Cast is here every month, usually. And I'm hoping to have a, a more laid back kind of episode next time and shorter. You'll be happy to know. And I won't go over as much of this stuff <laughs> unless something huge happens and we don't want it to, but maybe we'll talk about COVID and all that. Cause we haven't talked about the, the gene therapy drugs and all of the news on that. So maybe that'll be a good topic for next time. And the atrocity propaganda in the YouTube stream which will be coming up in November. I don't know exactly when and check me out in other things. Cause I'm going to go to other people's shows and stuff. So that would be really fun to interact with them. And I really hope I get to interact with other people soon again here, but not in this capacity. Cause this is not it. Um, although I did invite someone, but they couldn't make it. Um, but anyway, yeah. So thanks for listening again. And I hope you try to have a good rest of the weekend and week and end of October and hopefully nothing really crazy happens and let's never get a speaker of the house. That'd be great. Thanks. So we don't have to do any more funding and we already funded Ukraine again. So we don't really need to do that right now. Anyways. Um, that's about it. Uh, thank you so much. And we'll end on another song. Let's go back to that previous song.
Deus tá 